Hello, sweet friends, and welcome to the Vandeltron Curious World podcast. Today's episode is number 28 with actress Kim Chin. You know, when I was growing up, uh, I didn't have a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, Asian American friends. Well, I didn't have a lot of friends anyway, but <laughs> that's, that's a little beside the point. Uh, I didn't have a lot of Asian uh, friends, and um, I was always kind of an outsider, and I've, I guess I got kind of used to that, and um, I always wondered what it was like to, to grow up in an environment where you have a lot of friends that are, that are similar to you, you know, that are not only Asian, but Asian American. You know, I see that a lot in, you know, friends that are, that are Chinese Americans in New York who are, you know, born and raised here. And you have friends that have the exact experiences as you. I think that's maybe the difference between being a, a refugee and an immigrant. Um, I don't know. It's something that I've always, uh, it's stayed, it's, Obviously, it's shaped me, it's shaped who I am, and uh, it's informed me as, a, as an artist and uh, as a, you know, hopefully a mindful person uh, in our society. Um, you know, I met, uh, I met Kim uh, a few years ago when I was doing research on uh, an independent short that I was working on. I was adapting a play that I had written, and um, I was doing research on this, and and she always struck me as somebody that I thought, wow, you know, if only, you know, what if we were friends growing up? Because our, I mean, our experiences aren't, aren't the same, but our upbringing and our environments are kind of similar. And I always, I always thought like, man, that would have been so, that would have been pretty cool. Um, it would have been, I mean, it would have been life-changing actually for me. But, um, so fast forward to 2015 and, um, Kim's all grown up, as they say. Uh, she is, uh, she's really has blossomed into an amazing artist. She's got a one-woman show uh, that she's promoting, and she, they did a, she did a run in New York, and now she's going to the Edinburgh, Edinburgh <laughs> uh, Fringe Festival. Uh, I think by the time you hear this, that she'll probably be getting ready to go. And uh, she's amazing, and I'm just, on a personal level, I'm just thrilled to see her growth as an artist. It's, uh, it's mind-blowing, and it's inspiring. You may hear occasional hum or hiss in the background. That's actually the air conditioning unit. Um, you know, it was pretty hot, and I had one guest over, and I didn't have the AC on, and his, his glasses were, were fogging up, so obviously I didn't want that to happen to Kim. But uh, nonetheless, I do apologize for that uh, compromise. Uh, hope you guys will um, forgive me for that and uh, bear with the audio. Um, hopefully it's not too distracting for you. Uh, the content's there, so uh, just hang on because it's uh, really good stuff. Please check out uh, information on the play. And uh, she's got an Indiegogo uh, campaign going, so please support her with that. You can find out all information on the, on the play and Kim herself at reclaimingvietnam.com. I'll stop talking and just get right into it without further delay. My conversation with the lovely Kim Chin. So I was born in Pittsburgh. 
Pittsburgh, where I was pretty much not not me myself, but our family. We were the only Asian family for miles around. There was one other Asian kid in my school. I think he was also Vietnamese, but basically. I was, it was mostly white, and then there was one Indian kid and two black kids, but they were brother and sister. And then everybody <laughs> else, everybody else was white, pretty much. Yeah, and so we were the only Asian family, and our family was a little bit, we were known as the, I don't know, not the, I won't, I won't say weird, we were just not really socially accepted because there were so many people living at our house. We had... I think my teacher once said to me, oh, I drove by your house the other day and I saw all of these people outside and and every night at dinner we had 20 people around the table because all these people were refugees coming in from Vietnam. So my wow. dad built illegal housing, oh, sorry dad, in the basement. So he, he like, they built structures and built rooms and the attic was, and the attic already was like a, a playroom, but they made it into like a, they put five beds up there and then they had sleeping bags on the floor, so it was converted to like a dormitory pretty much. And what was that like for you growing up, you know, to be surrounded by like all these, you know, transient people? I mean, it was, I had a ton of playmates and I had a lot of, um, my pa I think what happened was my parents weren't really, they didn't really need to be around so much, so they were kind of off working or doing their own thing, and, and then there were cousins of all ages, and even other people who were not cousins, but people from the same village who also came and, and stayed with us while they were getting on their feet. So our home was like a, almost like a halfway house for some people. I mean, was that, was that like, did you feel like that was unusual, or did you just feel like, oh, this is, this is just kind of like, you know, what our, our family's going to operate on? No, it didn't feel unusual to me. It just felt, um, it sometimes felt that I was kind of lost in the mix, you know, that I didn't have anybody in particular that I could go to, or that was, I mean, I guess it started when, like, they, people started coming when I was about four, and then... That I guess we we eventually all moved to our, to Houston when I was almost nine, so it was about four and a half years of just lots of people and lots of there's a lot of tension. I just remember always being surrounded by people speaking loudly in Vietnamese yeah. and always thinking I'm gonna learn this. I'm gonna learn this. I know eventually I'm gonna understand because that's how you learn. So I would listen really carefully, and I would think, okay, I'm going to pick out one word or something. Something's going to make sense to me. And it never did. I heard it all the time, but I never understood. I never picked up anything, really, except a few numbers that my cousin specifically drilled into me. Um, are you, what, so when you, when you had like the elder people come, uh -huh. did you have to greet them formula, formally? That always terrified the shit out of me you know, as a kid. You know how you... Um, uh, for for listeners in, in Vietnamese culture, unlike other uh, Asian cultures, you have to greet somebody and you have to get it right according to the age that they are. So it's not like you can. It's very formal. So you have to. It's like good morning, and you kind of have to assume that like good morning uncle or good morning aunt. So I used to always just fuck it up and say like it'd be like good morning grandmother. I'd be like, what? I'm not that old. <laughs> I'm like, I'm sorry. I don't know. Right. So that would always terrify me. 
that would like that would be my big thing. That I was I was afraid of adults basically. Anybody who came over to visit my my parents, right. I'd be like I'd be like the cat and just go into the bed. Or the, well, I try to. Yeah, because it's based on okay. If it's your if it's your mom's brother, then you call him something. But if he's your mom's older brother, then you call him this. But if he's your mom's younger brother, then you call him this. But then if he's your dad's younger brother, right? Yeah. So it gets yeah, it gets very technical. Yeah, I didn't have that because mostly it was just my grandparents, so I just had to learn chow chow ba. Oh right, right. And there, and mostly it was cousins who were teenagers, and maybe young adults who didn't really. They kind of because my brothers and I were American, they didn't expect us. They sort of were like, eh, whatever, <laughs> lost cause. <laughs> Did you ever have uh, American kids come over? Good question. I usually went to their homes. Yeah, I would try to do that too. And I remember uh, one time I had a friend come over, and they were, <laughs> as soon as we come, like he, we turn around in the backyard, they were they were like uh, chopping the neck of the of a duck, and the blood was spilling into the bowl. <laughs> I'm just like, oh my god. And this kid, like, I think he just like ran home. <laughs> like, welcome. Yeah, where are you going? Wait, come back. Oh man, yeah, that was. That, it's funny all the different things that people do that you think are so normal. Like, like my grandmother, she would patch clothing and she would just use bright colored thread for everything. So it was like a white blouse, and then you'd have just bright red and not well sewn, just crazy patches, and then she would wash everything by hand, so it would be hanging up. It wasn't like washers and dryers and just, yeah, just random stuff hanging in the bathroom. Sometimes, oh, this is a funny, kind of funny and sort of sad. So my mom, my mom's white and my grandmother, my paternal grandmother is, Viet, well, was Vietnamese and my grandmother would um, take random clothes around the house and just start using them to wash the floors or she would make rags as she knew how to do. And she would just take random clothing found in the laundry pile. But my mom started crying one day because she said she found her favorite skirt like cut into rags. <laughs> and my grandmother, they didn't they didn't weren't on great terms but they also didn't speak any common language. So my grandmother would be like, What? Oh sorry, I didn't know <laughs> and my mom would be like, Stop ruining my clothes and then one I think years later my mom said, you know, I think she's doing it on, I think she did it on purpose. I think she hated me and she said all my favorite clothes I found, you know, cut up into rags, used for, to clean the toilet. Dear <laughs> grandma's like, whoa. <laughs> oh, I mean, you know, sorry, no. Home here. <laughs> so, um, uh, for, uh, for listeners, I, I think I, I'm going to let you in on, uh, Kim and I met a, uh, a lifetime ago, it seems. Um, I was doing research for a short film. Uh, um, of a, I was adapting a play that I wrote to a short film. And, um, uh, and on my research, uh, I, forget, I forget who put us in touch, but I, I spoke with uh, Kim uh, as part of my research uh, for my project. And uh, she was always somebody that intrigued me. She um, I felt like we had similar backgrounds and uh, just a, a very, just a very kind and open heart. And um, so, flat, fast forward to right now, 2015, 
and uh, she's a budding art artist, and uh, I'm so happy and thrilled and honored of the things that she's doing, and that she's here today. So um, welcome, and thank you, Kim, for coming here. And uh, I'm so excited for all the good stuff that's going on in your life right now. Um, I guess let's just jump right into it. Let's just talk about uh, you're going. You're going to be leaving pretty soon for the for the French for the uh, Edinburgh right? Edinburgh Fed. Right, you're supposed to say Edinburgh. I was um, I was coached Edinburgh. Okay. That GH is like Ura, or RGH is Ura. Have you been there before? No, I've never been there. Well, can I just backtrack a little and say thank you so much for having <laughs> me, Van, and it's been such a pleasure to to sort of watch you along your journey as well, and it's so great to be able to meet up again and catch up. And I would like to just say, when you first contacted me, oh my gosh, I don't know when it was, maybe maybe like eight years ago or seven, I don't know exactly, but uh, I was so excited because I don't really know very many Vietnamese people in New York City, and so I saw your name and I thought, <laughs> oh my gosh, this is great, another Vietnamese person, this is so cool, I'm going to get back to my roots and I'm going to be able to, you know, connect and and it it's true it, when i hear people speaking vietnamese on the subway i just feel so i feel so much joy really yeah i, I feel like it's where uh we are it's it's just you don't you don't see a lot of us you don't see a lot we of don't people. um yeah i i never i didn't grow up with uh with like um uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Colleagues, I guess. That's not that's not the word. Playmates. I didn't have any playmates. Um, like people, I didn't have any Vietnamese American friends growing up. So when I meet somebody of our similar background, basically who are raised here, um, I do. I'd say it's so rare for me, but when I do that, I, that's when I kind of perk up. Uh, but cool. we're not we're not here to talk right, right, we're right. not here so, to talk about my lack of friends because <laughs> uh, everybody knows I don't have any. Um, right. <laughs> so um, yeah, no, it's it's been wonderful just to kind of be in the periphery and see, you know, all the wonderful things that, that you've been doing. Um, so for yes. for people who are listening and uh, can can we uh, talk a little bit about the, your project? Yeah, thank you for asking. So yes, I'm taking my solo show to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. And this is a show that I wrote, and I've been writing it over the past, I would say, five years, honestly. I've been taking it to my acting class and workshopping it pretty much weekly up until about two years ago. Uh, I think I started writing it five years ago, workshopped it for about three years, tried to get up the courage to actually produce it. So I did that for the first time in 2013. Um, I, I basically just came up with the funds myself. and pretty much broke even, but it was a great, really good experience. And then uh, last year I spent a lot of the time entering it into festivals, really hoping, you know, that someone would accept it. And uh, I did get into the Emerging Artists, uh, Emerging Artists Theater, and I performed it there. And then um, I actually got into the New York Fringe this year, but I, I declined the invitation just because I had already signed up to go to the Edinburgh Fringe. So, <laughs> You're like, ah, sucker. I, I didn't even realize that they happened at the same time. Because last year they happened, I think, at different times. The Edinburgh Fringe was before. It wasn't, I think it was in July. I might be totally wrong. For whatever reason, I'm, uh, 
when I got the dates and I realized like on my calendar that they were superimposed. I, I had but what's going on right now over there? Isn't there, are they doing like a, a, a fringe type festival right now? Uh, it starts actually on Friday, August okay. 7th is okay. the official kickoff. So they're doing previews and they're doing all sorts of fun kind of press and media things right now. So you're just gonna like helicopter in and like kind show of. up like Mick Jagger and like, <laughs> okay, you don't need, okay, I'm out. Yeah, I'm actually, because I'm new, I, I, I knew that I only had two weeks because of work. So I thought, okay, fine, I'll just start in the middle. And that's, I, I spoke to a theater and that's when they had the dates available. So I am starting a little bit late, but um, but I'm hoping that it won't make a huge difference, and I, it's also, you know, it's a learning experience, so if I end up getting there late and missing all the press and media, then next year, or, you know, if I go next year or the year after, I'll just make sure that I'm there the whole time, but, um, but I'm going to be doing 12 shows over two weeks from the 17th till the 29th, and, and I think it'll be, re I'm really excited to do it. I did it in, I was, um, I performed it in New York last month in July as part of, it's really awesome, there's a theater, uh, 59 East 59 Theater, right, yeah. and they they have some sort of relationship with Edinburgh so that if you have a, a show in the Edinburgh Friends, you're automatically, they offer you a slot in their New York City kind of preview performances, so I did two of those in July, and that was really great, such a great way to sort of get, get your act together, you know, and re-memorized lines <laughs> and um, yeah so I'm really excited I was nervous to do it in New York City just because I think because I, I invited a lot of people that that I know but not so well whereas in Edinburgh it's gonna be mostly almost almost all strangers there there's gonna be one or two people that I know who will be there and then everybody else it'll just there's something really refreshing and really sort of um, what's the word? Maybe invigorating, or I'm really excited to just—it's like no holds barred. I, there's no no one knows me. Nobody nobody has any idea right. of like who I am. Or there's a part of I guess in New York because I'm I live here. There's a part of me that enjoys really enjoys theater, but is also aware of this other persona that I have at work, where I'm like, <laughs> what? Who me? You know, rather than I guess. It, maybe I'm not, I don't think I'm explaining it well, but it's it's almost like no people are not going as a favor. They're going yes. because this is a show, yes. and they don't have any they don't have any um, stake in you personally. They're like, oh, right. what's this show about? Sounds interesting. I'm gonna check it out. Yes. Yeah. So from an artistic level, yeah, that's gold. It's like, oh well, no, I I. Well, you said that so well. Yeah. That's no, because totally it's true. something that I've kind of it's something that I've experienced firsthand of. Um, on one hand, you kind of want, like, it'd be nice to experience this with other people and, like, you know, oh, cool. But on the other hand, I think it's, like you were saying, it's just, uh, it's euphoria in the sense that you look out and they don't know you at all. They don't know anything about you and they're just here because of the premise of the show. Yeah. So it's like, all right, let's do right. it. They just yeah. want to have, they just want to see a good show and that's what I'm there to deliver. So, and that's all, you know, whereas here I'm like, oh... I know I'm also your coworker, and, right, yeah. <laughs> and I know I sometimes help you organize your kitchen and you know just random. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so yeah. and the the show's called Reclaiming Vietnam. 
right? Exactly. Uh, can we talk a little bit about that? Uh, just kind of summarize that? I mean, I would, but you don't want me to. Yeah, but you mean talk about the title and... and well, you, talk, you mean talk about the show? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, <laughs> what's the show about? Um, yes, well, the show is... It's, a, it's an autobiographical piece, um, and it, it is based on on a lot of my childhood experience uh, growing up in a house full of refugees and kind of getting lost in the mix, having a lot of shame around around uh, Vietnamese culture and um, really uh, just, I grew up with a kind of rejection or, or a non-acceptance of who I was and what I looked like. I think because I grew up primarily in a, a very white neighborhood, white school, that kind of, it sort of was um, the beginning of, of like a, a certain type of self-hatred based on my own ethnicity. And moving to Texas, there was uh, maybe less of that because it was a much more international crowd of kids at school, but still, I remember very distinctly, I mean, it wasn't even that long ago, honestly, but from the time I was in third grade until, you know, high school, even college, just kind of wishing I had blonde hair, blue eyes, or at least red hair and blue eyes and fair skin, or why didn't I have freckles, or why didn't I wear braces, or why didn't, why didn't I have, like, long lashes, or there were just so many things that I, I wanted. I wanted to be, like, the popular girls. I wanted to be the girls that the boys had crushes on. I, I mean, I wanted. I just wanted to be a girl that the boys chased at recess time. <laughs> and I didn't feel like I was... I just always felt so different. So what were you, then, if you weren't that? Right, so I was... I was pretty tan. I was very dark-skinned. Not very, but for, for a Vietnamese person. What, what are you currently? Oh, what what am what am I currently? No, you're you're tan level because I get really dark. <laughs> I don't like I don't. You know, yeah, I'm just yeah. wondering if we're the same. Oh, like, I can get super dark. This is barely. This is barely. My mom sun. says like you you're Cambodian level. <laughs> so like I get darker than this, and then yeah, I become like a different ethnic. That's funny. Yeah. Well, I think you are tanner than when I first met you initially. Well, it's the summer. That's I'm true. like you know I it's it comes out yeah. and then you know my mom does the finger wagging and. Um, yeah. But uh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, you. it's like, okay. Um, yeah, I, I went through the same th same stuff. You know, yeah. um, you know. I think as a, when you're growing up, all you want to do is fit in, and it's so it's extra difficult when you your exterior is just there's no way you're gonna fit in, and you know you and then you come home and you're constantly reminded that from a child's perspective, you're like a space Martian that has been, you know, dropped onto this planet. Um, I just remember, like, coming home and just, like, gorging on pop culture, gorging on TV and, you know, listening to music and stuff like that, and that was kind of my escape. But back in my mind, I just felt like, yeah, none of these people look like me, you know. I, I mean, I enjoy it, but, you know, they, they resemble more of the kids at school. And that was always... Um, Frustrating for me too. Mm. Yeah, and my Barbies were all blonde-haired and blue-eyed, or at least fair-skinned and purple-eyed. <laughs> <laughs> or um, yeah, and, and all of my all of the dolls, a lot of the dolls. I guess I was really into dolls, baby dolls, 
and they were all fair-skinned and light-eyed and I yeah I didn't have I just felt totally different and and then there there are like mean songs that kids would sing about you know having slanty eyes or what did people okay so let's what did people um, even in a nice way kind of uh, guess that you were not, not even guess like assume old Chinese that's basically what everyone it, the more I travel the more I feel that really anyone anyone Asian to so someone who hasn't had a lot of exposure to different cultures they just they just group you as Chinese oh, yeah. it doesn't matter it's just have you gotten the uh, well, you don't look Vietnamese <laughs> sometimes <laughs> most people don't know what Vietnamese looks like so they believe me but Vietnamese people will say you don't look Vietnamese right because I'm uh, I'm I'm five eight, so I mean, and for normal, like in New York, I'm 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 probably the shortest of my friends, but around Vietnamese people, I'm like the Hulk, and my mom always you know, jokes about my broad shoulders. So yeah, if you put me in a room for Vietnamese people, I yeah I look I don't even look human. <laughs> so they're always saying like, oh you, you can't be Vietnamese. <laughs> that's very, that's very kind You're of you. Giant. Thank you. Yeah, that's kind. Thank you. <laughs> Has there been uh, any reception from the Asian community about your show? That's a good question. Um, I haven't really, honestly, because my show is so personal, I've kept it very close to home. I've mostly, for the first two years that I, that I performed it, I only invited close friends and uh, some family. Actually, my brother came and saw it last year. But... Um, no, I haven't. I haven't really reached out to the Asian community. A, a little bit, I have. So there's um, my gosh, CUNY. They have there's um an Asian society that that I've uh, done a few things with, and so they're they've been really nice, and I'm on their mailing list, and they've emailed stuff to me. Actually, there's um some sometimes they'll email me grant. Uh, different grants that I'm eligible to apply for and that's really helpful so but I can't say that I've had a lot of like a a big portion of the Asian the Asian community come and see it I, I really haven't reached out that much is that intentional it's <clears throat> a good question not exactly I haven't done a lot of performances and most of my performance of performances have been in smaller theaters if I if I was really trying to, to ha reach a larger audience base, which I am going to going forward, um, yeah, I would like I would like the Asian community, more people to see it. And, I mean, I have actually a couple of Vietnamese friends who I, I've intentionally not invited them to. Because I, I guess a part of me is afraid they'll be offended. Because I do talk about this self-hatred and this rejection. And um, it's not... It's not the it's not the entire show, but for a part of the show, I talk about this, you know, this um, vehemence. Vehem how do you say that word? Viet Viet. Um, I don't know. <laughs> Basically, like this loathing. People don't listen to this show for grammar. <laughs> Thank God. Yeah, maybe someone will post that. But uh, just the the hatred the. The kind of disdain or dislike of the culture that I grew up in, I think part 
I think I'm worried that people may find part of it offensive. Um, I'm trying to think if I have had any Vietnamese friends see it, and actually I haven't. It's interesting. I mean, I kind of remember who's been to which performances, and I have had Asian friends see it, but not Vietnamese friends. Like I said, I don't have a lot of Vietnamese <laughs> friends, but I did invite one woman recently, and she wasn't able to make it, but, but I hope that she... I do hope to... I'm going to reapply for the New York Fringe uh, in the winter time, and I'm really hoping that I'll be reaccepted for next summer. So at least that's that's definitely on my calendar, and I would love to have a huge, just huge audience. And I do have a, a list. I have a database of all the Asian societies and cultural com- cultural organizations that I can reach out to. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I think it's admirable that you've just kind of just kind of figured it out and just kind of did it and just kind of like um, not kind of just did it on your own and you know uh, um, I mean how did that start was it the story or was it the need to want to perform a piece that you that you that you could control oh hmm well I think it really was that I um, it started, gosh, you know, it was never meant to be a play. It was never meant to be a solo show. It was That was never my intention. It was really simply that I had, I had, I had this great acting class where I could bring any type of material that I wanted and just explore it. And so it started, I went to Vietnam uh, for the second time. So the first time I went, it was with a volunteer organization. And that's really where I had a lot of revelations about what it meant to be Vietnamese, what it meant to come from that country, and I had, I just loved it. I just fell in love with the country. As soon as I set foot on the ground, I just felt like, oh my gosh, I'm home. I had, I've never felt like that, and there's no reason, you know, I wasn't born there. I, I don't. I've been to Germany, my mom's half German, you know, I never felt that, but when I went to Vietnam and I actually put my foot down on the ground, I just felt this immense connection to it, and almost as if it was, like, the country was talking to me. Whenever I would walk by the ocean or lakes or rivers, it was like there was there were these voices, and it wasn't like a, like a Joan of Arc kind of thing, where, like, these voices, but... It was like this feeling of, I'm home, and welcome back, and you're here, and we're so happy to have you. You know, like, these are the feelings that I had all the time, that were just this constant, like, welcome back, this is where you're, like, this is where you came from. And that was such an amazing experience. So when I went back with my dad a few years later, I had a really different experience to where I saw that um, there was so much there was such so much disconnection disconnect between uh, the way he grew up and his love for the country and how I saw that it was never transferred to me that I never I never grew up with any understanding of the culture or of his his pride it wasn't it wasn't instilled in me so when I came back to the US after that trip I wrote this monologue, and I and I just I hadn't written anything, but my, my teacher said, "Well, how is Vietnam? Tell us about it." Because I hadn't been in class for a couple months, 
And I just said, I just started this monologue to my dad, like, Dad, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you ever tell me about Vietnam and what it was like and what it was like to grow up there and how you played in the ocean, what you did as a child? Why don't I have any memories as a kid of you saying, wow, this is what we did when I was six and this is where just anything. So I have a, a monologue that starts out, why didn't you ever take out a map and point to it and say, this is the country where I was born? So it was really sort of out of this anger, but more of this, this hurt that there was so much that I missed out on because he wasn't willing to share that with me. And, and so that was the very first monologue that I ever wrote. And I performed that monologue a little bit. I actually used it on auditions sometimes because it was so connected. I, I was very connected to it. And I, I continued to write pieces of my Vietnam experience. And then, then my teacher, so I guess maybe this is a little bit convoluted, but. You've come to the right place. <laughs> OK. <laughs> Thanks, man. Um, so I think the, 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 the subject that I'm sort of skirting around, the thing that I usually that it takes me a long time to say, or that I try not to say, is that this show is also about childhood sexual abuse. And a part of me doesn't want to tell people because, for one thing, it's very personal and it's very scary to admit it. It's getting easier, but it's still it's still a source of norm. I mean, that's natural. That, that it's something that, that I have shame about. Um, and that's, And that gets better, I think, every day and you know every performance that I I have more acceptance around it but I had actually gone to Houston to confront my perpetrators who were my cousins who came over from Vietnam and they were they were kids teenagers when it happened <clears throat> so before I went back I was actually in the same acting class as my teacher I had told her what I was planning on doing, and so she kind of helped coach me through the confrontations, what I was going to say, how I would do it. She sat in as each cousin, and then she would say, what do you want from me? Do you want me to leave? Do you want an apology? Do you want a hug? And I would, depending on who it was, I would ask her for different things. So we sort of worked on that together privately. Actually, it was I would wait until the rest of the class had left, and then we would work together. And so when I went back to Houston to actually say these things, I was prepared. And when I, and I basically moved away from New York for a year and stopped classes for another year. So I think it was two years before I came back to class in New York City. And so at this point, my teacher said, so whatever happened? You know, whatever happened with that? So I, and I kind of had forgotten that I hadn't told her about it. So we did this long private session where I went through exactly what happened with each cousin, what I said, what they said, how I felt. It was, it was this kind of purging that I did with her. And she took copious notes. And at the end of that session, she said, you've got to make this into a story. You've got to write this down. And I said, no way. This is personal. I'm never going to do that. Thanks for your notes. They're helpful. And you know, it's, it's a cool idea. Someone else can do it. I'm not going to be that person. So I kept those notes in a little file for many years. <clears throat> and then I went back to it one day. It's like I kind of knew that I needed to get back to it. A part of me just knew I needed to write some of those scenes and to do some of them. And 
And my teacher was very encouraging. She would say, just, you know, just read a couple lines and see where it takes you, or, you know, write a little bit of the dialogue and see what happens. So I would write some of the scenes of being in Vietnam and this appreciation for it, and then I would go back and I would write a little bit about different conversations with my cousins. And little by little, and this is over the course of maybe two and a half years, I started to mix them together, and I started to put, kind of juxtapose the Vietnamese, the scenes of Vietnam and, and loving Vietnam, what happened in Vietnam, and then these scenes of confronting my perpetrators, which is what you call the person that does harm. So, so it's um, so basically that that's that's how the story goes, and it's and it's um, I think it's really interesting because. What I wanted to give, what I thought would be really different was to give people an experience of, of what my, of what my cousin said, because I think so many people. I mean, I have, I have a support group that I go to of people who are incest survivors, you know, or um, survivors of childhood sexual abuse, and so I know a lot of their stories, and I know that a lot of people aren't able to speak to their. Perpetrators, they've never had the opportunity, or the person died, or the person, you know, is completely maybe mentally unstable, so they haven't had the opportunity. But I think all of us, have, as human beings, have had experiences where something hurtful has happened, and to have this experience to go back and to say, hey, this hurt me, and to hear what the other person has to say, whether it's something we want to hear or not, I think is very valuable, and I think that's why. I that's why, to me, this play is really interesting. It's very compelling whether or not you have identification with the subject. I think all people will have identification with the subject just because it's a, it speaks to the human experience, not just a person who is a victim of you know, sexual abuse or um, some sort of you know, perpetration. Yeah, that's how Um. So what? Uh, I, I, sorry, to, just to go back a little bit in terms of your dad when you confronted your dad and said, "Why didn't you um, share these things with me?" Yeah. Um, did that? Was that connected to what you just said? Well, that's a very interesting point. So that's the one monologue I've actually never. That actually never happened. It it never. I never had a conversation with my dad about that. He, there was a conversation. No, no, no. When when you said, "Well, why don't you? Why don't you? Why didn't you tell me about the beaches and yeah, stuff like yeah, that?" Yeah. Oh, so that didn't happen. That was a that was a, like a something that I worked on in class because my teacher had asked me, "How how was your trip? You know, what do you want to say?" And oh, I, okay. So okay. I basically said the things that I wanted to say to my dad during that trip that I never did. So he actually hasn't seen the show, and I wonder, <laughs> I wonder how he'll appreciate that scene. Yeah, I, I would imagine that would be pretty wild for you yeah. to have him there. Uh, what was it like traveling with him? It was great on the one hand because he's, he was like an interpreter and it was really... <laughs> Dad, get to work. <laughs> Dad, I'd like to order this and this and this. It was fun having him say, oh, that's what this means and this is what this means and this I is... mean, did you see a different side of him? I mean, was he like... Hey, you don't act like this back home. Like, what are you doing? Who is this? You know, did that? Did he? You know, did he? Uh, you know, remove some things and kind of let loose a little bit. Uh, 
I think he was a lot more vulnerable. I, he was really, he hadn't been back to Vietnam in 40 years, so he had left, I think, in 1964, and we went back, oh, maybe it was 67, 64, I'm not sure, but he, we went back, and it was like over 40 years later, and there were some family members that he hadn't seen since before the war, so he was very touched, so I saw him he was moved to tears several times, and that was different for me to see him that way. And and at the same time, it was really fun to see him enjoying himself so much. We actually took my grandparents' ashes back to Vietnam with us, and they had a ceremony there for them with a lot of family members. So there was this big, they planned some sort of big feast and there were, there were speeches, and my dad gave a couple speeches, and other people gave speeches, so that was pretty joyful. It was nice to see him, uh, I mean, it's not like he was in his element or he was even that natural, because he'd been away for so long. I mean, right. he's lived in the U.S. now more, longer than he ever lived in Vietnam, but it was nice it was nice to see Vietnam through his eyes. He was in a lot of... He, he was kind of in amazement at how much it had changed. Before we left, he called me and he said, Kim, how are we going to get money over there? I, I don't know. How many traveler's checks should I bring? And do we need to hide it in our belts? And, and uh, how much money do we need to bring? Because we were going to be there for three weeks. And I said, Dad, they have ATMs there. <laughs> and he said, What? He said, well, how are we going to talk to your mom? Like, how are we going to keep in contact? And I said, Dad, they have computers there, and you can Skype. He was like, what? He just had no, you know, he just couldn't see it that way. It was cute. He was thinking, like, you're going to the jungle. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Did you have any difference of of experience between the first time and the the second time you went with him? Um, the first time was completely while well, I was alone and I was with a volunteer organization so it was very different I mean it was sort of discovery everything was brand new everything was exciting and and devastating at the same time um, going back with my dad it was just it was more about I, I learned more about the infrastructure of Vietnam, like what the highway signs meant, you know, the propaganda signs on the highways, the different, like there were signs that I had never, I had no, no idea what they said, and my dad would tell me, oh, that one says, um, Vietnamese people like having one child so that they can raise them correctly. On the highway? On the highway, or on the side of the road, different types of, hmm. I mean, this is like, you know, that's of, like a government kind of like sign? brainwashing, yeah. Wait, Vietnamese like to have one child so they can raise them properly? Uh, it, was, it, was a, it was a sign suggesting. It's, they don't have laws about that. You can have as many children as you want. But it's almost like they're public service announcements along the highway. So, oh, isn't it nice? If you only have one child, then you can really take care of them properly. Yeah. So, <laughs> so these, are, these are things that I had never... I didn't... I didn't realize how much. What was the ceremony like for your grandparents? It was. It wasn't somber at all. It wasn't like a funeral whatsoever. It was a huge feast, and a big stage, and they had music and 
singing and really good food. It was all outside. It felt like a fiesta, like bright colors and um, people, people drinking and you know swatting each other on the back and talking really loud. Uh, um, it didn't. So there wasn't any religious connotations to it. No, we started at the church. <laughs> Sorry, you're right. So we went to a church and they had a whole ceremony. Honestly, I didn't understand any of it, so I sort of spaced out. It was a church, it wasn't a temple. No, no, Catholic. Oh. Catholic. I noticed there's a lot more. Uh, this Christianity is starting to seep into Vietnam. Yeah. My, uh, my brother, my, what's funny, my, my mom allowed us to be, be whatever. So I, my, my eldest brother uh, became a Catholic, and primarily because uh, he married a, a North Vietnamese girl who they're all Catholic. And I just found it strange because I, I mean, my mom is Buddhist and I kind of, on the periphery, like, was like, oh, what's that? And I always thought that it was an anomaly that, that their family were Catholics. But I'm learning more that, that Catholicism, uh, Christianity in general, is kind of uh, spreading out throughout the Vietnam. Yeah. That's kind of interesting. Well, my dad's from the North. Oh, okay. Originally. They escaped to the South when he was a teenager, but he, they grew up, his family, they were in a French colony, so they all spoke French from a very young age, and they all were super Catholics, you know, went to church every day, prayed every day, lots of mass, lots of rosary. When you went, for the first time, though, you went to the South, or? The... Actually, Central. I was close to Da Nang, um, in a small town. Basically, the or. Uh, I, I joined a volunteer organization. It was called Global Volunteer Network or Global Volunteers Network, and they one of the reasons that they sent volunteers to that part of the country is because it, it was probably the worst off after the war. Just a lot of a lot of poverty and a lot of sickness and a lot of um, a lot of Agent Orange sort of fallout. So a lot of a lot of people. Uh, there are a lot of hospitals out there. I, I guess they call them hospitals, but they're specifically for victims of Agent Orange, people that have mutations, and it's still very, very... It's still a huge problem, you know, because it's carried down... It's carried down through... I guess it's, it stays in your genes, or somehow well, yeah. it's passed I'm sure it's in the crops and the water. and. Yeah, so out there, it's just... It's really... It's kind of... I mean, I didn't... Uh, we there were a couple organizations that came and sort of talked to us about those organizations, or those um, I, I don't know what to call them. I guess those those homes where they house people, children. I mean babies, and they and they invited us to come. You know, take a tour, and they would show us pictures, and we would have meetings about it. But I we never ended up going on a tour. I think I think we were too scared. I think we were way too scared, but but the reason that um, we were working in the orphanages there—it's a small town called Tamki, about an hour about an hour west of Danang, and they just have a lot of just a lot of poverty, a lot of um, not a lot of commerce, not a lot of education. Most people are farmers, so so the kids out there are. Um, it's not that they're terribly 
um, you know, abandoned or in in need, but they definitely have. One thing that I thought was really interesting is the parents have the option to put their kids up for adoption and then pick them up later when they're older, when they can work the rice fields. How so, age? Uh, usually about five is four or five is when the, the parents will take them back. So they'll they have these they put up announcements and they say, okay, we're gonna come to the city center. Bring your children. Bring bring your babies if you can't raise them, and we'll raise them. And then you basically go and you um, you bring your kid, and then they they cart the kid off, and then you can go and visit. But a lot of the parents, because they're farmers, they don't have much time, so the grandmothers will visit the kid and bring them gifts, and sometimes the kid will come home on the holidays. But it's almost like a boarding school, but, but you know, a lot of parents, they'll just leave their kids there forever, or they'll, they'll come and expect the kid to come back and work. So the interesting thing is, while, you're, while the kids are at these orphanages, they go to school, they learn how to read and write, they, they learn a vocational skill. If the parents take them back early, then they drop out of school and they work the fields, and that's pretty much it in terms of their education. So it's not like that in every case. It's like an indentured servant, right? Kind of. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, uh, so your when you went with your dad, that was a was it rural, or was it like a like a metropolitan area? Uh, well, so when I went with my dad, I actually wanted to go back to the orphanages to see the kids that I had kind of hung out with so I brought him to meet those kids and I spent I think I spent a week a week there with the orphanages and, and the kids and my dad went back to Ho Chi Minh and hung out with his buddies so we kind of stayed separate for about a week and then we met up in Ho Chi Minh and did sort of touristy things like we went uh, we took a trip up to Hanoi, and we did the Halong Bay, those big rock formations, the outcroppings that are really beautiful. Um, we saw some caves, and it was fun, actually, because my dad has more of a northern Vietnamese accent, so it was really interesting. Could they, could they communicate with him? Yeah, yeah, it's totally, it's the same language, it's just... Some of the pronunciations. Yeah. So my, when my sister-in-law and her family, oh. when they speak, uh-huh. I, it, I can understand most of it. Uh-huh. Like eighty, I'd say eighty, maybe seventy-five to eighty percent. But there's some stuff that they say. I'm like, I don't know what the, what the fuck are you talking about? You know. And it is. I guess it would be like in, a, in the United States, maybe where somebody who you know is from Alabama versus you know maybe somebody who's from Connecticut. Yeah. Maybe you know you just kind of use a vernacular that is just so, and. In, and I don't live there, so the so some of the speech patterns of vernacular, it just like whoa! I had never heard of that before. What are you talking about? Yeah. And and you know also you know uh, if they're older, and and I'm nervous. <laughs> <laughs> How is your Vietnamese? I can understand everything, but because you know I, I didn't have any friends growing up, I it's uh, it's like an instrument that doesn't, doesn't get played. And when I ever, whenever I tried to attempt growing up, try to attempt to speak, I would just get ridiculed. My mom would just make fun of me oh, so no. much. Yeah, and I just was so, mom, if you're listening, ah, uh, no, I would just, she would, uh, yeah, she ruined me. She made me so apprehensive and con- so conscientious of, uh, 
of just like she would just like giggle and like ah it's so it's ridiculous you're a clown <laughs> and uh, yeah I was just so um, yeah I'd be terrified whenever like uh, an older Vietnamese like person would come over I'd be like oh my god I'm so scared it'd be like a horror movie for me yeah that sounds be, traumatizing yeah. I'm sorry <laughs> but um uh yeah I guess um I guess it, you know just uh so I, I've never been to Vietnam. Uh, I, you know, I was I was born there. But one thing that I, I always uh, that I, I kind of always picked up on from from Americans was uh, this sort of uh, prism that they view Asians of either you're either you're Americanized, you're American. Or you're like completely Asian, mm. and you just you know you just came here, and there's no in between. You know, I feel like I am an American, but I that's a part of me too. And uh, like for instance, so in the past, I'd say the past like ten years or fifteen years, so Vietnam has become a place where you can travel and you can go, and you know people can honeymoon there or just you know backpack there or whatever. Um, but it wasn't that way for you know when I was a kid and I was growing up, and well we didn't have any money. So, and as an adult, I have, you know, I guess my own personal, I mean, I do want to visit, but I guess there's, uh, there's some hesitation on my end for personal reasons to, to go there, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm just not ready. So I would, it would always be weird for me whenever I would speak to an American person, they're like, what, you've never been to Vietnam? Oh, I've been to Vietnam. Oh, it's amazing. And I don't know, I just felt like there was this kind of perception of like, well, why haven't you gone? Not factoring you know I don't they don't need to know anything about me but not factoring in anything like why I even came to this country yeah. I don't know I just thought that was kind of weird. and no other I don't think any other uh, Asian community it, it gets that you know I don't think Koreans get that and uh, Chinese or Japanese or anything like that mm. I'm whining I'm crying no I think that's a very good point I think also growing up in the Northeast I think that not that I grew up here, but I think meeting people here, so many people are world travelers, so, and so many people are curious about where you're from, what are you, and if you say a country that they've been to, they're very quick to say, oh my gosh, I've been there, it's so great, have you been there? And if you say, well, no, my family's from there, but I've never been there, they're kind of like, yeah, I totally agree, they're like, what's wrong with you? Well, and then it gets to something that I want to discuss with you about, is labels, so, and then I feel like automatically they pick you up and they put you into this label, mm. whatever it is in their head. Yeah. So, how do you feel about uh, being, uh, you know, a conscientious Asian American, but also an artist? You know, an artist who I imagine just wants to tell stories, who wants to act and wants to perform, but you also, there's, you know, you're also an you're an Asian human being, you yeah. know, with thoughts and feelings and this life experience. Right. So how do you, you know, how do you clasp both those worlds with both hands and and dance with them as opposed to having them fight each other? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And I think I can answer it in terms of sort of the acting world to start with because I think a lot of and a lot of the roles that I've auditioned for, it's either they want you to be white or fit into this 
ethnically ambiguous area, but not have any sort of accent and be able to meld or just sort of be whatever they want you to be. If you're pretty enough and tall enough and, you know, like, well-groomed enough, or they, well -groomed just, enough. they just want you to be, like, FOB, they want you to be... Right. And that means fresh off the boat. And <laughs> for those of you who don't know, uh, they also... They, a lot of times they want you to have an accent. They'll say, do not come to this audition unless you have a really good Chinese or Filipino or Japanese or Korean accent. They want women or men that have really like very authentic accents so um, I, I've often felt that well I'm not Asian enough to get this role because I don't speak the language and I can't do I really can't do a Vietnamese accent maybe if I practiced more or hung out with more Vietnamese people who had a very strong accent um, although my dad has one I don't actually hear it people say oh your dad has a strong accent and I say what? he has an accent? but I think that's just because I'm I've known him for so long, <laughs> but um, but anyway. So I guess what what was frustrating is like I can't I can't really audition for the Shakespeare stuff either. I mean I could nowadays. There are companies that embrace that, but in general, it seems like either you have to be very generic and you know uh, white enough to fit in to sort of you know be any character, any Jane that they want, or you have to be totally you know, super Asian. And I think what I really love about having my own, and you know this for yourself, having, working on your own material and having your own project, is that I get to star in this, and I don't have to be one or the other. Like, this is, this show is where, you know, I've taken both of these things, and I'm like, wow, I'm both of these things, mm. you know, and, and it works, and it's, it's an anomaly, it's not... Like, I don't fit into a category, and it's hard to put a label on on it or on me, and I and I like that. And I actually have a piece in the show where this French woman is speaking to me, and she says, well, what are you? And I say, well, I'm, I'm American. And she says, no, you're not American. Come on, look at you. You're not American. You know? And she says, well, where's your father from? And I say, well, he's from Vietnam. And she says, yeah. Then you're Vietnamese, right? Why didn't you just say that? Why do we have to have this whole long conversation? Wasted my time. You know, you're Vietnamese. Just say that. It's just be proud. You know, be proud. That's what they're kind of... Sometimes I get that people are trying to... You know, just own it. They, if I say, what's your nationality? You say Vietnamese. <laughs> oh, that just wipes away all that. Thank you so much. Just own it. You yeah. know, just own it. Even though that's not my nationality, I am American, you know. But um, but then I, you know, I, I get pissed off, really pissed off, because I say, well, what about my motherland? You don't, you didn't ask me about my mom, you know, because what if it were based on my motherland? Then I'm German, right? Or I'm. How did your parents meet? They met in grad school in Pittsburgh. Oh, they were okay. both taking night classes. And they met on the elevator. I guess they'd seen each other on the elevator a couple times. And then on a very cold night, my dad followed my mom out. And he said, hey, because it, it was like 20 below zero, as it often is in Pittsburgh. And he said, hey, let's, like, do you have a car? Do you think you could drive me home? Because I'm, fr like, it's freezing. Your dad said that? Yeah. <laughs> Smooth, Smooth move. right? <laughs> like, this white lady definitely has a car. <laughs> 
She said, well, I don't have a car, but I live just around the corner, so I'm happy to invite you in for a coffee or something. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have money for booze? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the story goes that she made a grilled cheese sandwich, but she burned it, so he made the second grilled cheese sandwich perfectly because he's an excellent cook. And then he cut them in half, and then they shared it. Wow. And she's American. Yeah. But, but of German so descent. She's, I think, second generation. Mom's side is mostly German. Dad's side is like Scotch, Irish, French, Welsh, something like that. And your your dad is both sides are Vietnamese? Yeah, totally Vietnamese, Vietnamese. Except about 3,000 years ago when it was. Oh, uh, although I bet um, when people see your last name, yeah. they get so confused, right? Because it's totally. Chin with an H. They're yeah. like, what the fuck? Yeah, I mean, I used to confuse me. I would think, well, wh- how come I'm not Chinese? I don't get it. Because all these other people with the last name Chin or Chang or Chen, all they're all Chinese. But you've got that extra H that in Vietnamese that we just love throwing H's on everything. <laughs> yeah, that's if you're Vietnamese and you see that, you're like, hey, I know that. Yeah, that's no Chinese name. <laughs> but everyone else assumes. Even Chinese people think it's Chinese. Well, yeah, Chin. I mean, that's sounds, yeah. yeah. So it's my dad's first name. And it's pronounced. Right, yeah. And in the north, NH is like an ing, so it's like jing, jing, and it's and it means uh, justice. Really? Or it means, or my dad says it means either frank, like to the point, or just, maybe. Actually, what does it mean, Ben? I don't know. Jing, jing, jing. I've never heard of. I don't know. Like my. Uh, my, my cerebral cortex is melting. Um, Sorry. Uh, oh. If your mom is listening, she's yeah. so disappointed. <laughs> I know. She's like, I told him. I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> so he put his, he basically took his last name <clears throat> and put it, uh, like his his middle name is now, is Nguyen. Of which course. was, of course, our, origi- our original name. And he made Chin the last name, whereas he says Ching. Uh, so that, and I think because think about this, when he moved to the U.S., it was 1970, I believe, and at that point, you know, it was the Vietnam War was really starting to get heated, and I think that he wanted to be able to, to pass as a Chinese person and not be, sort of the subject of this hot debate at that time. And he came here by himself. Yeah. Wow. Um. And he, uh, so he, but he came here, and you said that they met in, in grad school. Yeah. So did he go to undergrad here as well? No, uh, hmm, I think the system is different, but he had gone, he was studying to be a theologian, and actually lived in the Vatican for several years. And this goes into a whole other part of the story. I'd like to write a play about this later on. But my dad left Vietnam, and he was going to become like a diocese or an archdiocese. So he lived in the Vatican, and they were going to send him back to Vietnam after his training in seminary school. But he knew that if he went to, back to Vietnam, that you know he might get drafted or something bad might happen. I mean, there were really bad things happening. So when he left the country, he sort of said goodbye, like he wasn't sure if he would ever see his parents again. And once he was in Rome for a couple of years, um, he had made friends and they had told him, listen, you know what, you're not going to stay in Rome forever, but we can help you either get to Paris, like get to France, or get to the U.S. 
you choose. And my dad said that he had heard that in America the streets were paved with gold and that if you were ever down on your luck, you just went outside, scraped up some road, and you were like, <laughs> fine. And he thought, yeah, that sounds a little safer, so I think I'm going to go to America. Have you guys ever been to Paris Is this to check it out and see what life would have been like? I actually studied abroad in Paris. How was it? Did you did you ever like so? Did you wonder like, oh, I could have I could have grew up here. Well, no, because he told me that much later, probably, probably after college. Well, now in hindsight, when, in hindsight now that you now that you've no no, in hindsight, I wouldn't have wanted to live in Paris because I feel that America rocks. Who are we kidding? No, <laughs> uh, I mean Paris is beautiful and it's a great city, but in terms of racism, I find I find it extremely racist more than. The U.S. because, and some people like this about Europeans that they're very outwardly racist. Here, it's more we're closeted racists. But my personal opinion is, if you're racist, keep it to yourself. Whereas over there, it's like you'll just hear people talking badly about Algerians for no, just out of the blue, like, and it's totally accepted. Maybe it's not that way anymore. But I found that even as an Asian person, people were constantly trying to talk to me and. People were saying konnichiwa all the time as I walked by, you know, trying to be cute. Or oh, to... not not in a in a very condescending way is what you're saying. I mean, it felt condescending. They were probably trying to be friendly, but it felt very, it's like, you know, or they would say, they would just speak to me in Chinese or Korean or whatever they knew, just regular people trying, you know, trying to, trying out their language skills. Right. But sometimes it felt aggressive. Uh, yeah, they're going through a lot of uh, a huge period of transition right now with um, because a lot of their um, a lot of the Muslim population are also impoverished, and so they're um, so there's a huge uprising now. Actually, I I didn't even know that that was. I do remember a couple of years ago when all the, remember the riots and they were overturning cars. Oh yeah, there's like no trash getting picked up and stuff like that. Yeah, that was several years ago. How do you, uh, what inspires you um, as an artist to write, to, to kind of get in that mode, to, to just kind of, um, to say like, wow, you know what, now, now I feel like I, I have to, I get it, you know, that, that your, your, your energy is on like full tilt. Hmm. I think, I don't necessarily consider myself a writer. I have written things, I've written monologues for myself, I've written this this show it's all based on well, what is a writer then I mean I feel that a writer is somebody an alcoholic who... <laughs> yeah, I don't drink that much you know I'm not tortured I don't have any blocks in terms of writing because it doesn't I, I'm more of a like I want to take words and I want to put like emotion to them I want to put movement to them sound and like I want to give them form but you know words on paper are are not as it's just the potential. That's how I feel. So writing is is easier in some ways, but but my my form of writing is really storytelling, and I think mm, stories, real life stories that are so unbelievable that that you you know they feel like fiction. I think those are the things that I really like to write about. The things that I I think my mom used to always say this when I was a kid. She would say, you can't make this stuff up. You can't make this stuff up. You know, real life is so unbelievable, so unbelievably amazing sometimes. You know, like, life is stranger than fiction. 
and I like that. I, I think that's true. And whenever I find stories that are almost, what's the word, a supernatural, like have an element of coincidence or, or um, some otherworldly type of feel, I, I like to write about that sort of thing. I like, I think, magic. <laughs> that sounds funny. But I, I think, I think I, I, I like, I love the world of the theater because anything is possible and you can create worlds with just, you know, a, a flick of a light and, and some words. And, and I think when I'm writing, I'm, I'm thinking about that, how the audience feels and how to make how to make that magic happen how to make this two-dimensional piece of paper how to make it three-dimensional i think that really excites me and and connecting also having an audience that's listening intent intently is very powerful and i think so such a gift i think that's i think that's why i like writing but writing for theater well, I, I, I didn't want to make it just inclusive to writing. Yeah. I just meant like oh, uh, oh, maybe even performing as well. What's the question again? <laughs> what uh, you know? What really kind of excites you? Um. Yeah, I think it's that. I think it's really connecting the energy between um, the actor and the audience member. And it doesn't even have to be, it doesn't even have to be an audience. It doesn't have to be an actor. Sometimes you're just at a party and you just have a story to tell or a joke to tell. And, and for a moment, you're, you're taking people on a journey. They're following. They're agreeing to come along with you. And I think that shared journey, that experience together, I think that's, something that I find completely magical and enchanting. Just, yeah, just um, connection, just that connection with people. And there are certain points in the play where there's a lot of tension and there's, there's a lot going on emotionally. And I'll just sort of stop and I'll kind of breathe and I'll sort of take, take sort of take the temperature of the room and and it feels like no one's breathing and it's so quiet and in that moment I think yeah they're with me they're here they're on this journey okay let's keep going and that's a really it's such a beautiful feeling and it's it's not like oh good I, I've got all this attention it's more like <laughs> although that's that is that is really nice too but just that they're really with you. They're 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 willing. It's such an honor to be to be for people to give that to you to say, okay, here I am. I'm vulnerable. I'm open. I'm willing. Take me with you. And and I and I do believe that people open themselves up more. You know, in the theater, in the dark. They're they're like, take me, take me. Like, let me go on this this trip. Let me have this experience. And that is so powerful and and so yeah, just thrilling. Cool. Um, if you were to time travel to you yourself 
10 years ago, what advice would you give that person? Whoa. Um, oh, okay, let me think. 10 years ago, um, what year is it now? Okay, 2005. Whoa. Huh. I guess. I guess I would have told myself, don't worry so much. Don't fret about every little detail. Because in the end, you really have so little control over all of it. There's very little that we have control over. And I think to let ourselves, or maybe for me, to just let myself be led without obsessing about the tiny details because now you know over 10 years um, the time I've spent obsessing over the tiniest little details and crying and worrying and you know just turning my just turning blue waiting or wanting or willing something to happen um, I think I've spent an equal amount of time doing that as I have pursuing my art which is part of the process I don't know if I would have changed even if I would have told myself that then but I think now uh, I have a lot more faith about where I'm going. And this project, it's, I don't feel like it's necessarily mine. It's my story, but it's so interesting. The things, how it's moved forward, it's, it's like I, I make a phone call and it's like, yes. And I ask a question and it's like, yes. Whereas so many other parts of my life, it's like, no, 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 no. But whenever uh, it comes to this... I'm sorry. I, I, I'm, oh, sorry. Could you clarify that? Yeah, I, sure. I, so what do you mean by that? Well, I mean, in terms of career, uh, in terms of even acting, in terms of... Well, to give you a, more of a concrete example, whenever I've needed to do things regarding this specific show, Reclaiming Vietnam, it's been all about taking an action, and almost always... It's easy. It's the weirdest thing. So, for example, I needed to make a video two years ago, and I didn't really know how to use Final Cut Pro, and I didn't know how to render, and I didn't necessarily know how to like move the sound, and I, I had this vision of what I wanted for my background, because I originally had video in the background, and I spent two hours trying to figure it out, and then another hour the next day trying to figure it out, and it, it just came together for no good reason, because I don't know, I don't have those skills, I didn't know what I was doing, you know, I was Googling how to do things, but at the end, it was a piece that I actually could use, could put in a, a you know, a computer, and it would play. If I try to do that with anything else, there's no way that it could work. But for this show, whatever I've, I've needed to do for it, it's just happened. So with Edinburgh, I just thought, it was just a passing thought, maybe I could check it out. And then all of a sudden my friend was like, oh my gosh, I'm from there. I'm going to find you a place to stay. And I, and I thought, oh, okay, cool. Great. So that worked out. And then I called a travel agent and she was like, great. The prices are really good. Here's your, you know, this is, here's your itinerary. This is exactly what you wanted. It's this much. I'm like, wow, that was easy. Oh, okay. I guess I'm going to book these tickets, you know, <laughs> I mean, anything else that I've been wanting, that I'm trying to do, you know, be it relationships or jobs or school or I mean I've had tried so many other little careers here and there and it's like just doors slamming in my face and crying and struggling and working so hard to you know get this certification and try to do this and interview for this and it's just like no 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 but whenever I try to do things for this show it's like yes 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 sure and then 
this friend just emailed me today and she said, hey, listen, I'm going to be, I'm, gonna, I'm coming to Scotland and, uh, and I need all of your press stuff. I'm going to drum up a bunch of, of people to like come to your show and we're going to, I'm going to start working on, you know, gathering up lots of, lots of people to come see it. It's like, what? I didn't even ask for that. This is amazing. Like, wow, it's kind of like karma, but, um, you know, it's interesting. I, I draw, <clears throat> when I was a kid, Okay, so maybe this isn't too interesting because it's about me. <clears throat> when I was a kid, chess came very easy to me, to a point where uh, I started entering myself into into competitions. You know, I was like little Bobby Fischer, but I didn't do it to be competitive, and I didn't do it to like you know beat kids. And I was like playing against like college kids, and I was like, I'm gonna be ten. I did it because everybody around me just couldn't play my level and it wasn't like arrogance it really wasn't it was just I want to be able to play with somebody who can play with me but I was going to these these competitions and it was so e it was pretty easy for me and I was just dominating everybody and I would see these I would see other kids and they were, had their coach and they had their parents and they were nervous they were like come on Bobby you can do it <laughs> and I was like reading comic books until they called my name and then I would just like you know boop 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 because my brain just looks, I, I think part, I'm also dyslexic, so my own self-diagnosis is I see, like, uh, I see things differently, like literally see things differently. So it became so easy for me for a long period of time, and then uh, there came a point where, <laughs> where my parents got interested in, so, uh, and then I started going to different levels, and it started, like, so people started getting invested in me. And then I started caring about the competition, and then I felt like, like the magic kind of like, came out of my body because then I started psyching myself up, and it became difficult. I became in my head. Mm -hmm. It became in my head so much like I don't even play now. Wow. Like I, I, I just feel like I would just kind of flip out, or my heart would race. Like I went over, I went over a, a friend's apartment, and you know they had a chessboard out. You know, and we, they were just kind of goofing around. Like, do you want to play? No, I'm like an addict now. That's how bad it is for me. Like I can't play. But I guess to to bring this to your point, I think a lot of it, you know, it, you, I think you're riding like that wave, that magic where, you know, whereas those other things in your life where you're kind of pushing and pushing and pushing, this is just, you know, it's that, um, yeah, it's you, you've you've got that thing where it is it, you know, you're it. You know, you're driving down the street and everything's turning uh, green light, green light, green light, and just ride it, you know? And I think if you, I think a lot of times in life when we do try to push too hard, like that's, that's when walls come up and doors close. Mm. And if you're kind of effortless and you don't put too much of like the emotional uh, fortitude into it, then you kind of slip through. Um, yeah. I think that's maybe that's what's happening with you. I mean, th that definitely was from my personal experience, that's what, that's what happened to me when I was a kid. And uh, yeah, I've never, never, never played chess again. <laughs> Actually, that's not true. I, I teach people how to play sometimes, awesome. but then they, they just turn around and beat me because I just, there's a part of me where I'm just like, yeah, I don't care. And I, you know, I'm just like, yeah. Um, oh, I'm terrible at chess, but I would love chess. <laughs> I'll show you and then you can beat me. Um, yes. Uh, so, Kim, thank you for coming on the show. Yeah. Uh, before we run out of time, a question that I ask. Uh, all my guests. What makes you happy? What is happiness for you? 
Um, happiness for me, I think, is... I think it's the little things. I think it's... Um, I think it's really... So, I'm gonna try and keep this short, but one thing that I loved about Vietnam was that everybody sews, everyone sews their own clothes, especially... Properly, or like your grandmother who was just putting globs of cloth everywhere? No, properly, like, we'll cut out pieces of material in order to make, like, a shirt. Like, one lady that I became friends with, she said, Kim, tomorrow I'm gonna measure you, and I said, sure, so she took my measurements with her little measurement thing, and then the next day she brought, she brought me this outfit that she had made from scratch, like a shirt and a skirt. I was just amazed. That's what she, she just did that out of, because she liked me. Um, but the other thing that everyone just has a knack for is like growing things, vegetables, plants, flowers. And when I came back from Vietnam, I started a vegetable garden and I started sewing. I'd, already, I'd always had a sewing machine, but I didn't really use it. And I, I got so much joy from that, from making things with my hands and from digging in the soil. So that's still something to this day that I've kept with me. I still love, like sewing is one of the happiest things that I do, where I'm just filled with joy. And being in a garden, or just even like potting a plant, every morning like I look at my little garden and I water the, the tiny basil plant on my fire escape, but I get so much joy. And I think those things, like doing, doing those things make me really happy. So happiness for me is, Having those those little things that just connect you to who you are and feel really authentic on a daily basis, um, and yeah, so that's that's pretty much it. But before we end, I do want to say one thing, and maybe this is um, a blatant plug, but I just launched my Indiegogo campaign. No, that please do Literally. it. Literally, so yeah. I, I've been putting it together for the last week and trying to just tweak it. Anyway, so I just got the email that it's live. Well, it's about like it's live. It's ready to go and I and I am I'm working on fundraising. So, I am trying to raise $7,000 in 2 weeks in order to fund the rest of my trip. Just, you know, lots of basically the main thing is uh, the space and the tech and the insurance and then, you know, the travel and Luckily, I have accommodations, so that really brings my budget down. But, um, but I, but I am trying to raise that. So if you, I guess if you go on Indiegogo and you, and you Google or you search, you do a search for "reclaiming Vietnam," my project will pop up. And do you have a link uh, from your sub website? Yeah. Okay, good. Um, so what's the? Which it's a just kimchin.com. No, actually, or? so I have a website for the show. It's www.reclaimingvietnam.com. Cool. Kim, thanks so much for coming on the show. Everybody, the show is Reclaiming Vietnam. Uh, again, I'll put on the links and all that good stuff so you can check it out. Please support this uh, wonderful artist and amazing human being and a sweet soul. Um, Bodhisattva, everybody. Go out and do good in the world. Thanks for listening. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Kim Chin. Um, you know, a lot of people ask me, hey, I'll come on your website. You don't have a donate button. And uh, and I've always said, well, you know, I, I, this podcast is really a labor of love for me. You know, if there's some things that you want to donate to, uh, and there are millions of things, uh, you know, I'd, I'd highly, highly encourage you to consider, you know, channeling uh, those resources uh, to them.
Um, and it's rare that I do this, but I, I would encourage you to consider, um, you know, helping out this this project. Uh, Kim's going to be at the uh, Edinburgh French Edinburgh French Festival uh, this August seventeenth uh, to the twenty second, and then the twenty fourth to the twenty ninth. Those are the dates. Uh, if you want to donate, there is an Indiegogo campaign going on right now. Um, you can go to the website Indiegogo.com and search for her name or the play's name, Reclaiming Vietnam. Or you can go to the website, uh, the actual website of the play. And uh, even if you don't want to donate, just want to get some information about the play, because I think this is a really significant piece of uh, performance art. ReclaimingVietnam.com um, Thank you, everybody, for listening. And uh, please check out uh, Kim Chin's uh, amazing play and all the great things that she's doing. Thanks, guys. She may be the face I can't forget A trace of pleasure or regret May be my treasure or the price I have to pay She may be the song that summer sings Maybe the chill that autumn brings Maybe a hundred different things Within the measure of a day Take a laughter and her tears And make them all my souvenirs Where she goes I've got to be The meaning of my life